0: All right, so Ephesians chapter 2, you guys, we are middle of the way through our series on Ephesians, line by line, just kind of taking a peek at this amazing letter, and we're going to dive straight in, starting in verse 11. We're going to read about 10 verses or so. Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Actually, that's kind of a hard right turn. We were just talking about baptism in the lake. Now we're talking about circumcision. We'll make it. We'll survive it. <laughs> so remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without God in the world. Verse 13, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. Verse 17, he came and preached peace to you. ...who are far away, and peace to you who are near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. And consequently you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people... ...and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets... ...with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone." And in him, this whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by. The Spirit. This is such a fantastic passage, you guys. We have a lot to cover in just a really short amount of time. But here's what you just need to know now. If that was like a lot of verses and you kind of got lost halfway through, don't worry. We're going to sort of work through it together. But here's what you need to know now. If this is all you get, get this. This section is about Jesus forming a new, unified, multi-ethnic family that preaches peace to a broken and a hostile world. That's what this passage is all about. By the way, this is a huge deal. This is a huge deal. We're going to see that according to the scriptures, this is a super critical part of our prophetic witness to the city of Bend. Because you and I, we are different in so many ways. We're, uh, we're different socioeconomically. We see politics differently, um, different personalities. I'm sort of introverted, some of you are extroverted. Uh, We have different interests and we spend our time differently. We're different ethnicities um, or maybe just like from Different European countries, basically, because Bend is like crazy. Why? Although we are like beginning to see like diversity in in our community, and we're so so happy about that. Um, so we have all of these different uh, sort of um, opinions that were different in so many different ways. But because we all follow King Jesus together, we are united under Him, and the best evidence. We learn from scripture, the best evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, is that we love one another the same way that Jesus has loved us, John chapter 13 and 14. We stick by each other, we sacrificially give to each other, we don't give up on each other, we forgive each other, we're committed to making things work with each other, we're committed to doing life and community with each other. That's what it means for us to be the people of Jesus. And there's something powerful, there's so, that, that is the, the fact that we love one another is great evidence to the resurrection, the power of Jesus. So throughout the whole history of the church, in fact, one of the main reasons why the gospel about Jesus has been so compelling is because the people who love and follow after Jesus are a part of this brand new unified multi-ethnic family and we love one another the way that Jesus loves us. So um, if you're just sort of joining us in this series, here's what sort of leads up to today. The, the, The best way to see Ephesians is an unfolding drama of Jesus's victory, and this is something we've talked about a couple of weeks now. It's a letter, but it's so much more than a letter. Paul is sort of dramatically unfolding how Jesus has victory over the kingdom of darkness. And you might remember a couple of weeks ago, I showed you this diagram of the like sort of divine warfare in Ephesians, and we don't really have time to look at that again now. But the idea is that there are corrupt, evil spiritual forces that are sort of conspiring against God's plan to bring redemption. To the whole world. And in and and it's sort of in this great paradox um, that we probably the greatest paradox that we see in the cosmos is that Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom of God on the earth through the cross. And we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, how paradoxical it was that Jesus claimed victory on the cross. It was a death blow, the scripture tells us, into the forces of darkness. And death has been beaten, the grave has been conquered, Jesus is risen, and we have life ever after because Jesus vacated his heavenly throne and went to the cross on our behalf. Which leads us to point two of Ephesians that Jesus's full, uh, or the Jesus's victory will take full effect when He returns to unite all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. So this is um, this is like a, a really critical part that we see that Jesus' kingdom's been inaugurated, but it hasn't been fully. Um, fully realized yet because we live in this this time in the in-between of the now and the not yet where still there are some things that are not the way God wants it done, but there is a day. There's this mystery of God's plan of redemption has been revealed to us who trust in Jesus that God is going to, in the age to come, make everything right and that there's going to come a day when all evil and death and corruption and pain will be completely removed and where God wants and where what God wants done is totally and completely done. Where heaven, where, is, where God is currently reigning perfectly in his love and justice. And earth are like seamlessly overlapping and everything will be as it should be. That is our imminent future. That is what Jesus is up to in the world. And Ephesians 1.10 tells us that that's what's happening. That the, 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 the goodness of God is revealed in this Reality that Jesus is uniting all things in heaven and on earth. So that when we see what God is up to and when we know what his end game is, it totally changes how we see our present. Let me repeat that. When we know what God's end game is, it totally changes how we see our present. And that's the sort of the the point of Ephesians. That Paul is writing so that we, as the people of Jesus would participate and live into the victory of Jesus. We would actually participate in his victory. And Timothy Gombas, who wrote wrote this fantastic commentary on Ephesians, this is sort of how he summarizes the the meaning or the purpose of the letter. That since Jesus is unrivaled in his power and authority, and since he has sort of decisively defeated and exerted his authority on the cross, and since he's sort of revealed to you and me his end game, and since he's given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1-3, we now have boldness and confidence to participate participate today in, uh, in the unfolding drama of Jesus uniting all things under Christ. So that is how we're meant to sort of see this passage. And last week, if you recall, uh, Brian, who's a guest from Westside, one of our partnering churches, he left off in verse 10. He says, you are his handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared in advance for us to do. So we're meant to be actors in this unfolding drama where we actually participate in the victory of Jesus. Are you guys following me so far? Awesome. Okay, so as I was praying for this message and sort of repeating some of these key themes are super important for us understanding things going forward. I was just thinking about how maybe how this is hitting you, like how you might be experiencing that, that reality or that truth. Maybe you're like, man, Andrew, I, I like what you're saying. Like These are like nice words, but I'm kind of stressed out. I'm stressed out about coronavirus or whatever, the election, um, and you're thinking to yourself, like, thanks for the nice words, but I'm sort of stressed out, I'm confused, I'm over busy, and how does this really touch down in my life for real? And that's what this passage is all about. It's about taking these big, grand, ethereal ideas about Jesus's victory and, like, how that touches ground in our real lives today. So that's what we're sort of talking about. So Paul tees it up with verse 11 and 12, which is on the screen behind me. And this is that, that part about circumcision and uncircumcision. It's like, what is all of this about? So, um, so basically you have these, in the Ephesian church, you have two groups. You have the Gentiles and you have the Jews, which are Bible words of, just saying people of different ethnicities. So um, these two groups were not predisposed to get along with each other. In fact, we sort of surmise from this, this text, they actually were having a really hard time, like oil and water, having a hard time getting together and becoming one family. So to get a better idea of like this divide between them, replace those terms Jews and Gentiles with like Trump loyalists and Bernie supporters, like completely ideologically opposed groups, a part of the same church, part of the same family. And so what Paul is pointing out is first of all that to the Gentiles, Prior to the gospel of Jesus being preached to them, they were sort of excluded from God's covenant family. They didn't have any way to access the Father or Yahweh or even have a way of approaching him. But verse 13 tells us the good news, right? Now in Christ Jesus, we're going to read a couple of verses together here. Now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law of its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two and thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. So I I, want to... Like before we sort of gloss over that and move on, I just wanna sit in that for a moment. First of all, just a question. According to the scriptures, where would we be without the blood of Jesus? Where would you be right now without the blood of Jesus? According to the scriptures, we would be without hope. We would be without any way to experience the love of the Father. And it's really, I think it's easy for us, especially those of us who are like church veterans, and we've spent a lot of time in church over the years, so I hear that and go, yeah, 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 okay, so what's the next point or what's the reality that I haven't heard of or I don't know about? But let's not gloss over that and let's actually consider for ourselves just the gratitude that we have for Jesus' sacrifice. Before Jesus, I was guilty. Before God, because of my sin, and according to the earlier parts of this chapter, I was enslaved. I was guilty of sin and enslaved to the kingdom of darkness. And through the cross, what happened is that Jesus is taking on himself or taking into himself the shame and the guilt of my sin. And like I mentioned a minute ago, he claimed victory over the kingdom of darkness, rising from the dead and decisively delivering that death blow to the kingdom of darkness. And so what that means is that I'm both forgiven of all of my sin So like there's no thing in between me and God anymore. There's no, um, like Jesus took care of that reconciliation between me and God, but then I'm also set free from the things that were enslaving me, the things that were holding me back from being in relationship with God. So when we sing about the cross and come to the table of communion, which we're gonna do in just a couple of minutes, I'm not like a passive bystander to the whole thing. Sometimes I think we look at the cross in that way like it's, it's sort of like, oh, how could those evil, horrible people murder Jesus 2,000 years ago? But the reality is, is that we're not passive bystanders. We are actually humbly and meekly agreeing with Jesus that we need this plan of salvation. We need this redemption. We're asking him even to, to go on our behalf and to take our sin. We need him to take our place in judgment. So we're not passively like consuming Jesus' sacrifice. When we come to the tables, it's like this active response that we are taking. And that's why in verse 14 it says that he himself is our peace. He himself is our peace. It's not that he offers peace or he's like a broker of peace or whatever. It's, he is our peace. And I was, as I was praying for our church this morning, I just got this sense that there's some of us who need to experience the peace of God. And maybe you walked in here, um, again, sort of feeling anxious or upset or for one reason or another. I don't know what's going on in your story right now, but I know there are a lot of people in, our, in this room who are suffering. And what God's word to us is that he is causing us to flourish in Christ, and we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So I just wonder if we need to sit in that for a moment and just hear the word from God, not from me. I can read the scripture all day long to you, but to hear from the voice of the Father that we have his peace. And with that peace that he uh, he brings us, he's also making peace between us. He he himself is our peace, but he's bringing or making peace between us. So anyone who calls on his name. And the language here, I don't know if you caught it, but it's super ironic and I just love irony in the scripture because it's deeply poetic. So um, what the scripture says, what we just read, is that he's tearing down the wall of hostility. He's putting to death hostility. Right. And and uh, that is language is like almost intentionally militaristic and, and violent sounding. He's he's putting to death hostility. But what is all of that? What is actually happening there? What is he tearing down? What is that wall coming down? That wall that's coming down is the barrier between us. And he's establishing his peace between enemies. And that's what is happening. So it's peace in this totally roundabout and ironic way. Jesus is ushering us into a peaceful relationship with one another because of his goodness. And by the way, that includes the the Trump supporters and loyalists and the Bernie supporters. And, And I think we sort of, because we read Jew and Gentile in the scriptures, we don't really consider just how scandalous it is to say that Jesus is bringing down the wall of hostility and making us all one in Christ. And so I think that we need to recapture some of that scandal because the scandal of the love of Jesus and the peace that Jesus brings is way, I think it's way more than we're comfortable with. This thing is way more than we're comfortable with, and and uh, as I was sort of meditating on this this week, I was reminded of the prophet Jonah, and we're familiar with the prophet Jonah. We're only we're, we're more used to like the, the 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 Sunday school story with the whale and all of that, but really there's a lot happening too in this story that in in, in uh, the book of Jonah that's so much more than just that. So uh, if you remember, if you remember, Jonah doesn't want to go to Nineveh where God called him to preach a message of peace because. The Assyrians were oppressive and he hated them. They were his Gentile counterparts and they had oppressed his family and his nation. And so Jonah had this sort of inner turmoil and he was reluctant to go because, because he knew God's heart. And this is actually what he says in chapter three and four. He knows that when he goes to Nineveh to preach this message of peace, that God is gracious and God is compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. He's forgiving wickedness and evil and sin. And so Jonah knows this character, knows this heart of God, and so that he knows that when he finally relents and goes to Nineveh, and there's a widespread awakening to his message of peace, that God actually brings mercy and forgiveness to him. And so, so Jonah throws himself a pity party. That's actually how the end of Jonah, that's what happens with, at, at the end of Jonah's story. Because he wants grace for himself, but he doesn't want God's grace, that same grace for his enemy. But again, that's the whole scandal of, of the, the peace of God, the grace of God, is that anyone who calls out to him is forgiven and saved. And that's super helpful. I hope, I hope that this uh, actually hits you in a really inspiring way today because. Uh, it should inspire a lot of hope, especially for people like me who need like a lot of grace. And I know there are a lot of you, too, who would consider yourself in the same boat, like, man, I need so much grace, and I'm grateful that the grace of God is so scandalous. But there's also something that we need to sort of wrestle through, because God indiscriminately loves your enemy, too. He loves your enemy, just like he loves you. And so all of a sudden, the people that you might not want nothing to do with are now a part of the same covenant family along with you. So that's one side of looking at it, but the other way of looking at it, which I think is far more redemptive, is that Jesus is forming this new, unified, multi-ethnic family that preaches peace, that practices peace, but also preaches peace to a broken and a hostile world. So you are no longer a slave to sin and fear and death, and that's what you have in common with other people, anyone who calls out to Jesus, including someone who previously might have been your enemy or someone who opposed you or whatever and that's greater than all of your differences the fact what makes you a jesus follower is greater than all of your differences and so by his power the church is now one new humanity according to the scriptures now uh, I mentioned at the top that this actually has something to do with the sort of unfolding drama of Jesus's victory. And a lot of you have already sort of made this connection. Remember, the, com- the culmination of God's plan is the unity of all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus. And you and I, in the family of God today, are meant to be the example of Jesus's victory taking effect on the earth in the present. So we are meant to model this peacemaking God by coming together as one family, that there is no dividing wall between us anymore, no matter your political leanings, no matter who you are ethnically, no matter who you are uh, socioeconomically, we are all one family. And so we're meant to model this peace. This peace has touched ground to earth because we are uh, all defined by him and are all his children. So how will the world know that there's hope? How will the world know that, there's, there's, that peace, peace on earth has come? How will people know that they are loved and that there's a vision for life that means an end to all of the brokenness and the hurt and the pain that people are living in? The answer to that, according to the scriptures, according to Ephesians here, is the church. We are the example. So Paul is actually lifting up and, and elevating the church here as this prime example of the fact that Jesus' victory has already come and it's breaking in on the earth. So this is sort of the, the main takeaway for us today. The main takeaway is this, that we are meant to be this new community that, is, that practices making peace. So practice making peace, that's what I want us to walk away with today. And I've been thinking so much about this lately, a lot, of, lot, a lot to do with just what's going on in my life right now. But as I was sort of meditating on this, I was reminded of how Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And here's what I've sort of come to experience, that this is actually a pretty easy thing to say and to even sort of believe in. It's another thing entirely to live it. And in fact, I sit down with people all of the time. In fact, it's one of the main things that I get to do as a pastor It's I get to sit down with people who are hurting and some of them really reeling from just the pain and and of of broken relationships. And I see that all over the place. Unfortunately, divorce and um, broken partnerships and and work relationships and all of that is, is something that happens real regularly in our culture. It's just tragic, it's devastating, and I see it sort of firsthand. Also, just full transparency, like I have a few broken relationships in my life right now, and it's actually been a really uh, interesting timing, to be quite honest about, just what's happening in my story right now and this particular passage. Um, Just this week, I, I was walking through a really tough situation with a brother of mine, someone I would consider to be a close friend, and I feel so hurt by him. So betrayed by him, so mistreated, so misunderstood. And I've been walking through that this week. And so standing here and preaching this message feels so timely, but I'm also preaching to myself because I'm sure my brother feels a lot the same way. This is an active question in the life of the church. It always is. So how do we make peace when we disagree and when we're hurt by people who we love and who we trusted? Remember, Jesus isn't saying, the Scripture isn't saying that we're not going to disagree or that we're not going to be hurt by our brothers and sisters. What the Scripture is saying is that we're actually committed to making peace when we disagree and when we're hurt. So we have to work this stuff out. How do we do it? How do we not just... um, like do what the world does and put up the walls of hostility again, but how do we bring those walls down and participate with Jesus' victory by making peace? So I just like, one of the scriptures that came to mind as I was um, sort of um, getting ready for today was Romans 12:18. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If it's possible, as long as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So to live in peace with a brother, it requires both of you to live in peace, right? And you're only responsible for your own decisions and your own actions. And so your commitment in this process is to take care of whatever you can possibly take care of to make peace. And as far as I can tell, there's like a lot of things that we can do. And I think we need to get better at practicing peace. So here's like six things that I came up with and then we'll open up the tables here in a second. But here's like a couple of things that we can do in order to make peace. Number one is to just, the entry point into this, is to just remember that you are forgiven by Jesus. This is part one. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus teaches us to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who've trespassed against us. So right, this is the, this is the entry point to making peace. I have peace with God because of Jesus' sacrifice. He forgave me of my sin, therefore because I've been forgiven my big debt to God, I need to follow in his footsteps by forgiving those sort of smaller debts that people owe me. And there's a parable about this you're probably familiar with in, 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 the, in the book of Luke, where there's the, the king who forgives the, uh, uh, a subject his debt. And then that subject goes and proceeds to still hold on to the debts that other people have against him. So Jesus' word to us is like, hey, you've been forgiven a big debt. And so now your responsibility is to carry that forward and to continue in that by forgiving the debts of the people around you. And it's a part of it's all wrapped up into Um, this this concept of being forgiven. If we have received forgiveness, then we extend forgiveness. It's just as simple as that. And I know that for a lot of us, this sort of triggers us, right? Because we've been hurt deeply by people that we love and people we've trusted. And um, some of you are sort of working through this actively like I am now and just sort of realizing that, man, betrayal from people that you love is really hard to work through. But there is a freedom that comes from releasing people from the pain that they've caused you. There's a freedom in your own spirit that comes when you're able to forgive people for what they've done. Um, One of my mentors in ministry is this man by the name of Rich Jones. He leads a church in Hillsborough, which is the first church I ever worked at. At 19 years old, I became a youth pastor. And it was an absolutely phenomenal experience. I learned so much from Rich. And um, A couple years after I left and moved to Bend, his oldest daughter was brutally murdered by a teenager who's just a sociopath and shouldn't have even been on the streets in the first place. And she was brutally murdered and killed. He showed up at at his sentencing a couple of years later, the person who murdered his daughter, and publicly forgave him and released him from the debt that he owed him. And then he, he went beyond that and actually, uh, with a couple of other people in the state of Oregon, started the first ever sort of Christian ministry uh, in the Oregon State Penitentiary where his daughter's murderer is at. It's like, and, there, and when you talk to Rich, you can see the freedom in his countenance and in his eyes. He's been through a lot of pain, way more pain than I can identify with but he has been released and set free. It's a really powerful, powerful thing when we release people from the debts they owe us. So that's number one. Remember that we ourselves have been forgiven a large debt. Number two, remain open to reconciliation. I think that in the West we have this tendency to assume that some relationships are too far gone to be redeemed. I know that I've been guilty of that. But here's what we're saying when we trust in Jesus is that we actually believe more in God's ability to redeem broken stuff than in our ability and other people's ability to break it. Does that make sense? We trust more in God's ability to redeem broken stuff than in our ability to break stuff. And Jesus, remember, Jesus like came alive and, and and the script, we, we just read in, in Ephesians chapter one a couple of weeks ago that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is in us. And so we believe that the, the greatest power in the whole universe is within us. So we believe that his power is greater to redeem stuff than our ability to break it. Um, so um, this is actually one of the things that I think the people closest to me sort of resent about me um, because uh, every time I hear someone talk like that, like, like, um, oh, this person is never going to change or there's no hope for that relationship or whatever. I always, I can't help myself. I jump in and say, you know what? It seems super unlikely, (laughs) but it's totally possible. And uh, I think the people in my life get kind of annoyed by it, uh, to be quite honest, and I understand why. But to believe in the resurrection is to keep an eye out for and to have a lens for the power of Jesus in really unlikely circumstances. And that's what it means to trust in the resurrection. So we're, we're always open to reconciliation. So we forgive others uh, because we've been, given a for, we've been forgiven a large debt, and then we're always just open. We always want to remain open to reconciliation. Uh, number three, uh, we go first in making apologies. That's number three, go first in making apologies. And I think about this in particular as it relates to your marriage, if you're married. Guys, do not wait for your wives to come towards you in conflict. I've done that way too many times where I've held back my apology until grace comes to me and offers an apology to me. You go first in making an apology, even if you're convinced you're only like 10% at fault. Like, you go first in making the apology. And by the way, you're probably not just 10% at fault. It's probably much more than that. So a lot of the times, the reason that we withhold our apologies or we hold out for the other person to apologize first is usually just because of pride. which just is getting in the way of reconciliation for you. Pride doesn't serve you well. Pride doesn't serve you well. Humility and meekness is what is required to... Build a healthy relationship. It's also kind of risky to be humble and meek because you, if you go first in making a, an apology, you may not, it may not be reciprocated. You may not be validated. So it, there is a lot of risk associated in it, associated it. But again, Romans chapter 12, as far as it depends on you, be at peace with everyone. Number four, just a couple of more. Number four, resist the urge to be right. Resist the urge to be right. Now, as a one on the Enneagram, I'm speaking to other people who have this sort of type A, black and white sort of nature. We have this sense of justice. If you're a one on the the Enneagram, I know I can feel your pain. This is actually almost impossible for us to do. So again, I'm preaching to myself here as much as I'm preaching to anyone else. But reconciliation often requires one of us one person readjusting their priorities to say, I may feel like I'm right here, but the relationship is more important than being right. So I'm going to readjust my priorities. So rather than insisting that I'm right, I'm going to prioritize this relationship in such a way so that I can reclaim it or redeem it or reconcile. Again, making peace takes humility. This, This does violence against your pride. Making peace does violence against your pride. It's not your friend, pride is not your friend. Pride doesn't serve you well. A life of pride, I've seen it happen way too many times. A life of pride, a lot of times you'll end up at the end of your life having lost a lot of people that you really care about. And without, you might be right, you might have won a lot of arguments, but you probably lost a handful of friends. So resisting the urge to be right and practicing humility results in restoring broken relationships. Number five, um, and this one I have to like, just a little fair warning. You're probably not gonna like this one and I don't like it either. Um, Absorb evil and absorb hatred. Don't perpetuate it. Don't repay it. Jesus invites us to take up our cross and follow him daily. And for us, that's metaphor. For him, it was completely and totally literal. Right? But that principle that he wants us to follow in his footsteps is making peace means absorbing the things that people say about us, absorbing the things that people do to us rather than repaying them. Right? Um, it's just the way of the cross. Now, what I'm not saying be careful here. You have to be careful with this one, because I'm not saying to keep putting yourself in harm's harm's way from people who are unsafe. But what I am saying is that we don't repay evil for evil. And the reason why this is hard for us, we don't like it, is because it's just ridiculously hard to do. And because we have this sense of retribution. I don't think it's a coincidence that one of the uh, most popular plot lines in Western culture is the revenge fantasy, where the person who's done evil to us gets tenfold back what they did to us us. But again, the message of Scripture is almost completely different, diametrically opposed from Western culture. 1 Peter 3 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. There's so much that I wish we had time to say about this, but we don't. Um, Keep your eye on the fact that Jesus was hated and he absorbed evil. Jesus was mistreated, Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus carried his cross even though he did not deserve it. And now, he's exalted on his heavenly throne. And so, since we are a part of his family, we are inheriting his kingdom as well alongside of him. So in this life, we are going to have a lot of trouble. That's just the way that things are in our current state of things. But our reward is coming. And I think that God's word for us is that the reward far outweighs the trouble. The reward outweighs the trouble. So consider it a privilege, really, to suffer with Jesus in the here and now. Are you guys with me? Last thing we need to do to, to make peace is to refuse to slander and to refuse to gossip a sister or brother. And this is a really important one, I think, in particular for our time and culture, like one of the things that I, uh, when we launched Riverbend, we, we thought this might actually be something, an important area for, for growth and improvement as sort of a younger church this tends, like, slander and gossip tend to be, like, immaturity things that we experience in, in in the church, and I've seen it happen again and again. I've been a part of a lot of church communities. Tends to be an immaturity thing. So when I hear about a new, young Jesus follower who hasn't learned to sort of rein in their gossip and slander of, of someone else, I have a lot of grace, and I think we should. Just, just simply want to speak the truth and love to people and teach others what Jesus has taught us, that we don't actually speak negatively about one another behind their backs. We actually go and we speak the truth and love to one another. But what has been a surprise to me, something that I did not expect, is the 20 to 30 year church veterans who haven't grown in this basic area of discipleship. We don't speak negatively about one another behind each other's backs. We simply go towards one another, and we want to make peace. And so that means we speak the truth in love, which is something that we get in Ephesians chapter 4. And in my experience, a lot of the pain and a lot of the brokenness in relationships that we experience, it comes from people just, frankly, saying too much to the wrong people. And so we, we, we just sort of sound off or mouth off in ways that we shouldn't. Let's all take our mom's advice on this one, shall we? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. It's good advice, mom. Thanks for that. So um, I kind of had planned to, to go into quite a bit more about our identity, but as I'm, as I'm like looking into this, there's, there's a lot more, and we're sort of running out of time. We took some time to share some stories at the top. So just, I wonder if this might be a good time for us to just hit pause, and to just respond and reflect on what Jesus has spoken to us thus far. Like We are a community that's meant to make peace. So what that means for us is that we forgive one another because we have been forgiven, we always remain open to reconciliation. We refuse to slander and gossip, brothers and sisters. We absorb evil and hatred, and we resist the urge to be right. We go first in making apologies. Like these, this is what it means for us to practically live out the victory of Jesus that he's told us is now possible. So will you guys um, just stand with me? We're gonna respond as we come uh, to the table of communion and remember the sacrifice that Jesus gave us. And again, I just want to remind each of us that that we are not who we once were. So as we respond to Jesus, as we respond to his forgiveness, and as we come into his family, he gives us a whole new way of living. We get to live in the victory of God. We get to participate in the victory of God. We get to see on the pages of Scripture his life, and we get to see that come alive in our story too. And so if you are um, just like me, going through something in your life right now where you feel like, man, I'm so misunderstood, I've been mistreated, I've been hurt by people that I care about and people that I trust. And if you feel like, man, I, I just have been, I'm in so much pain over that. Let's just go through a short rhythm of just releasing some of that pain. First of all, you have a Savior who identifies with your pain. Remember, Jesus carried the cross for us. He experienced deep hatred. He experienced the, the, the pinnacle of like what it means to be mistreated. We, we, we can't fully relate, but we can relate in a little bit. And Some of us, it's real. I don't want to make light of what you're experiencing. If I'm describing you, the heart of this, this morning is not to make light of what you are experiencing. The heart instead is to just simply follow in Jesus's way. He's told us that he is tearing down the wall of hostility between sisters and brothers and he's uniting us and making us one church. He's making us one people. That doesn't mean that, that hurt doesn't exist, that pain doesn't exist, that disunity or even um, uh, mis- misunderstanding doesn't happen. It's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that we now know how to process these things because we are the children of God. So I just want to encourage you to, um, if you're holding on to and withholding forgiveness from someone in your life that has deeply hurt you, just as you're ready, this isn't a forced moment, but just begin to release that to the Lord. That might just mean verbalizing in your own words or just even under your breath. God, that hurt me. I'm reeling from that was untrue, that was wrong just verbalizing that, releasing that to the Lord again, God's word and his heart to you is that that is a burden you are not meant to continue carrying Jesus has offered us forgiveness, now we have this beautiful opportunity to offer forgiveness to others as well Let go of just your sense of justice too. It's like, no, this needs to be right. This person needs to make this right or whatever. Just allow yourself to sort of release that as well to the Lord. And remember that we don't repay evil for evil. We don't repay insult for insult. But we remember that we have... This example in Jesus, who was maligned and hated, but now is seated on his heavenly throne. So we have this brand new opportunity to not look at what's wrong, but to look at our future and to know what is true of us. We have a reward that is waiting us, and the reward outweighs the trouble. The reward outweighs the hurt and the pain of this moment that you may be experiencing. Jesus' invitation for you is to just say, hey, lift your eyes, lift your eyes off of the stuff that's wrong and broken and onto me. Another thing that was spoken at uh, Contending Prayer a couple of days ago was just that God is bringing breakthrough. Which is... uh, It's a word we maybe often use. I'm not really sure that we fully understand what it means. But I don't know if we need to. And I feel like for someone in the room, this might be the moment of breakthrough. And it comes on the other side of releasing someone from the pain that they've caused you. We're not condoning it. We're not saying that it's right we're pressing into this moment and saying I've been forgiven I'm also going to forgive notice that as you forgive notice what the Holy Spirit begins to do he rushes in with his peace that's what you've been longing for right that's what you've been wanting right you've been wanting to experience the peace of Jesus and notice how as you release the things that you're no longer meant to carry the peace of God rushes in to meet you notice his comfort So we're going to sing, and as we sing, we're going to come to the table of communion, and we're going to remember yet again the sacrifice that Jesus made, and if you need prayer, if you're like, man, that sounds great, I'm not really sure if I can walk in this, there are people that would love to pray for you, and they have faith to believe that God is giving you this power to release the people of Cross pain in your story so I want to invite those of you who need prayer to come join me over to uh, to the right of the stage. I'd love to have this moment to pray and just lift you up.